everyone. Welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Piero Tartaro from Gastroenterology on the CAG and ACG guideline for management of dyspepsia, released in 2017. Dr. Piero Tartaro is a clinician teacher and lecturer at the University of Toronto, as well as a staff gastroenterologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. He has a Master's of Science in Community Health from the Dalla Lana School of Public Health, with a focus on health practitioner teacher education. His academic and research interests are related to medical education. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tartaro. Thanks for having me, uh, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here and to provide some guidance for the audience. Wonderful. So we'll just dive right in. Why don't we start out? Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How is dyspepsia part of your clinical practice? So I've been a gastroenterologist now since 2008, uh, so have encountered my fair share of dyspepsia over the years, and it is actually one of the most common reasons for referrals. So it is something that is highly prevalent, uh, both at the primary care, general medicine, and subspecialty level. And on a given day, it'd be hard-pressed not to uh, have had a patient or two or 10 uh, with dyspepsia, both in my practice at Sunnybrook, as well as and sort of the, at a hospital endoscopy clinics that I work at and that many gastroenterologists work at. So what is dyspepsia? So it's actually one of those terms that's often used, but I think probably poorly understood because it's this conceptual concept of symptoms that arise from the gastroduodenum. But when you're talking with a patient, you can't ask them, are your symptoms from your gastroduodenum? But, you know, what can we sort of use as sort of guidance of you know, what should we encompass as symptoms of dyspepsia or symptoms that we feel may arise from the gastroduodenum? And as is discussed in the guidelines and works well in practice, the main sort of cardinal symptoms include epigastric pain and burning. So it's important to sort of localize the pain to the epigastric area, or at least to the upper abdomen, or meal-related symptoms. And by meal-related symptoms, either postprandial fullness, which is sort of having that sensation of sort of poor digestion or prolonged sort of sensation of fullness after a regular size meal or early satiety, which is the inability to sort of complete a full meal. And those are sort of the four cardinal symptoms that encompass dyspepsia and should make you think of sort of disorders of the gastroduodenum. That being said, patients often come with other associated symptoms that go along with this. And that can include things like nausea, vomiting, heartburn, bloating, belching, but if you start thinking of patients with predominant vomiting, then we don't really consider that dyspepsia and start thinking vomiting disorders. Or if the patient has predominant heartburn, then we start thinking of more GERD and sort of mimics of GERD. So although those symptoms like vomiting and heartburn can coexist in those with dyspepsia, they should not be the predominant symptom. When sort of considering dyspepsia and the gastroduodenum, we need to consider what else is around the gastroduodenum and symptoms could they be coming from those areas? So hepatobiliary symptoms. So is the patient, you know, having epigastric pain that's happening once every six weeks, happens overnight, and then completely asymptomatic in between those episodes? To me, I'd be starting to think of biliary pathology like biliary colic. Or is the patient having exertional epigastric pain and is a diabetic, hypertensive, and smoker, where I'd be thinking, is this referred pain, particularly cardiac pain, uh, or is the patient having constant pain, worse with movements, worse with position changes, and could this be MSK pain? And constipation is a great mimicker, and a lot of gastroenterology is like, rule out constipation first, and there's many patients who come in with upper abdominal pain who are really just constipated. 
Um, so always taking a good sort of lower GI history as well too. And you would not be surprised how many dyspeptic patients get better once they're on a good bowel routine. So just sort of thinking outside of the box of the stomach uh, and sort of related organs and always remembering constipation as well. In this guideline, the initial investigation for dyspepsia is divided based on those over the age of 60 versus those younger than 60 years old. Can you explain the difference in approach between these two age groups? So the reason there's the division using age is because of the higher prevalence of gastric cancer as one gets older. That being said, gastric cancer is still uh, an uncommon cause of dyspepsia. And the U60, and that's more designed for a North American population and some other uh, populations, uh, particularly uh, in the uh, sort of East Asia, they may use lower age cutoffs for screening because of their higher rate of gastric cancer. So anyone with new onset of dyspepsia after age 60, the guidelines support early uh, endoscopy to sort of rule out gastric cancer, recognizing that most patients still will not have gastric cancer. So that's the main reason they sort of use that age 60 cutoff. That being said, in a younger patient with alarm symptoms, we will generally proceed with endoscopy earlier. And that being said too, most young patients, even with the alarm features, do not have gastric cancer. Um, so in the end, the guidelines were chosen based on sort of gastric cancer prevalence and to ensure that we don't miss something that's very sinister, recognizing that the majority of time that won't be present. So what type of alarm features are you looking for in a younger patient that might prompt you to go for endoscopy? Yeah, interestingly, when the studies actually look at alarm features, they find that majority of them don't have very high uh, positive predictive value just because of how low the prevalence is of gastric cancer. But the main ones we'd be looking for are weight loss, unintentional weight loss, uh, overt GI bleeding, anemia, particularly iron deficiency anemia, not explained through other losses, vomiting, dysphagia, jaundice, palpable abdominal mass uh, would be sort of the ones. And the more of those that are, are present, the higher your sort of suspicion for a sinister cause. Many people we see do have some intermittent vomiting that's usually just part and parcel of their sort of dyspepsia in many of them when it's not predominant vomiting. And many of them will have a little bit of weight loss just because of the sort of dietary restriction that may go along with the dyspeptic symptoms. Uh, and although we may choose to do an endoscopy earlier because of the presence of those alarm features, our rate of finding gastric cancer will be quite low. Uh, but you can imagine that that might provide quite a bit of reassurance both to the patient as well as to the uh, gastroenterologist or other clinician. Makes sense. Thank you. What would you typically be looking for on endoscopy? So outside of looking for gastric cancer, as we mentioned, which overall has very low sort of prevalence, uh, we're looking for alternative causes. So part of them could be other sort of foregut pathology that would include things like peptic ulcer disease, uh, the presence of esophagitis or Barrett's, which may increase our suspicion for GERD if it wasn't otherwise a typical presentation for GERD. Uh, at the same time, we would biopsy for H. pylori either to assess for H. pylori or to confirm eradication in someone who had never been assessed for H. pylori previously. And depending on the circumstances, if there's any sort of suspicion for celiac, like if they're having some weight loss, diarrhea, iron deficiency, we may take some duodenal biopsies at that time. One thing I would mention uh, as a gastroenterologist is if you're seeing a port where it comments on things like gastritis or erythema or erosions, not to put too much clinical significance to that. 
Uh, patients will often come in saying, you know, I have my history of chronic gastritis, uh, and it keeps on sort of taking away from them recognizing that this is more functional dyspepsia, which I know we will talk to in a bit. So as a gastroenterologist and endoscopist, I try to, if there is some of these findings, mention that it is likely an incidental finding and not of any sort of clinical significance so that we can appropriately label and address the underlying cause of their symptoms. That being said, if there is erythema and erosions, you know, assessing and treating for H. pylori is important, which I would generally check for regardless, even in a normal gastroscopy, H. pylori would be checked pretty routinely in a gastroscopy. Great. When, if ever, would you do a motility study when investigating dyspepsia? So it's a frequent uh, sort of topic of debate in the gastroenterology world about what is the role of motility studies in someone with dyspeptic symptoms that are recurrent or chronic. And the bottom line is, is that they have no role outside of sort of the scenario where you're highly suspicious for gastroparesis. So that would be someone with recurrent postprandial symptoms. So often postprandial fullness, nausea, vomiting, and typical risk factors for gastroparesis, which would often be things like uh, long history of diabetes and or sort of uh, medication-related uh, gastroparesis or post-surgical. Even in that situation, you could argue that what's a gastric empty study going to add because your pretest probability of gastroparesis is probably already pretty high in that scenario, but still reasonable to do in that specific situation. Outside of those situations, uh, the gastric emptying study does not predict response to therapy. So the studies show that even if you have someone with sort of recurrent dyspeptic symptoms who doesn't have sort of typical risk factors for gastroparesis and they have abnormal or delayed gastric emptying, it does not predict a response to prokinetics. And a normal gastric empty study does not mean that they won't respond to prokinetics. So you can see in the end, it won't change management. So no real role uh, for the vast majority of patients with sort of what we will end up talking about as functional dyspepsia. At this point, we've already referenced functional dyspepsia a couple of times. So what is functional dyspepsia and where does it fit into the treatment algorithm? So the majority of patients who have recurrent and or chronic dyspeptic symptoms will end up uh, having what is referred to as functional dyspepsia. Sort of practically speaking, this involves having sort of ruled out any alternative cause. And this is essentially via uh, for the most part, a structural examination, specifically an endoscopy, although an upper GI series could be considered in someone who may not be a candidate for endoscopy. So essentially, you've ruled out peptic ulcer disease, you've ruled out sort of cancer, uh, and you've considered at least other causes like hepatobiliary, cardiac, colonic, pancreatic. It doesn't mean you necessarily rule them out by doing a million and one tests, but you've at least considered them. So from a pathophysiologic point of view, in these patients, the underlying reasons why they have their symptoms uh, can be various and include things like hypersensitivity, uh, altered gastroduodenal motility, and or impaired uh, fundic accommodation. And in different patients, it may be sort of different sort of pathophysiologic features at play. And unfortunately, we don't have good tools to always sort of figure that out. And the newer trend towards the this sort of concept of functional gastrointestinal diseases for which functional dyspepsia and irritable bowel syndrome are our most common, is that the newer label is disorders of our brain-gut interaction um, to sort of emphasize the importance of both sort of gut factors and brain factors in, in the symptom manifestations. 
Very interesting, especially the new terminology that you mentioned, not yet reflected in these guidelines, but likely reflected in the next set of guidelines, I imagine. Yes, hopefully so that uh, you'll start seeing this used more and more. And I find it's very helpful to talk to patients in that term as opposed to functional dyspepsia because brain gut interactions, it's something that really leads well to sort of the type of therapies that we can offer and helps the patient recognize that this is something for which um, we need to address all those factors and individualize the approach depending on whether it's more the gut that's sort of driving the symptoms or the brain that's driving the symptoms or both. Again, this next topic is something that we've touched on a little bit, but can you tell me more about the role of H. pylori treatment in dyspepsia? So in terms of H. pylori, it's one of those situations where it's great that we have this as a treatment uh, for dyspepsia, but the same token expectations need to be set because the vast majority of patients uh, won't improve with H. pylori uh, treatment. We do have some good sort of data to sort of guide uh, sort of what to expect with H. pylori treatment. And in the uninvestigated population, so those with chronic recurrent dyspeptic symptoms who have not undergone an endoscopy, the number needed to treat is one in seven. And that partly reflects uh, underlying sort of peptic ulcer disease in this uninvestigated population and the fact that H. pylori is a common cause of peptic ulcer disease and a, therefore also a cause of dyspepsia. When you get into the investigated population, so those who've undergone an endoscopy, and do not have any abnormalities, particularly no peptic ulcer disease, and you find H. pylori, the number needed to treat is much higher at about one in 13. Uh, so in this sort of population of functional dyspepsia, we recognize that many patients will have no improvement or no significant improvement with treating H. pylori. Um, so expectations need to be set in that regard. That being said, we'll generally offer treatment for H. pylori due to its association with future risk of peptic ulcer disease, as well as potentially risk of gastric cancer. Um, so once we sort of detect it, unless there's sort of some major reason not to treat H. pylori, we would offer treatment as well as offer confirmation of eradication, uh, usually via urea breath test if feasible. I do find the most important things about setting the expectations of the fact that many patients who have already had a normal endoscopy uh, treated H. pylori may not provide significant symptomatic relief. So we need to be prepared for sort of other treatment strategies, but also recognizing that H. pylori is associated with peptic ulcer disease and gastric cancer. So emphasizing why we may still want to treat and confirm eradication. So after you've treated for H. pylori or after you've tested for H. pylori, what would you typically do for empiric therapy for treatment of dyspepsia? So part of this is also depend, depends on what the patient has already done or tried in the past. So as you can see in the ACG guidelines, I uh, will go through sort of the approach that you need to test, should test and treat for H. pylori, consider a PPI trial, and subsequent to that, you know, consider the endoscopy in someone who doesn't warrant a early endoscopy based on alarm features or age. Um, so in that situation, theoretically, they would have already tried PPI before we've seen them as a gastroenterologist, although that may not always be the case, or it may not have been a sufficient PPI trial. So I do think, you know, revisiting the PPI trial is relevant and also inquiring about, did they take it properly? Particularly, was it given before the first meal of the day, ideally 30 to 60 minutes before the first meal of the day? And was it a sufficient length of time, ideally four to eight weeks? 
Practically speaking, the PPI trial is more beneficial in those who have more of the epigastric pain, epigastric burning symptoms versus those who have more of the meal-related symptoms like postprandial fullness or early satiety, where PPIs are unlikely to provide uh, more uh, benefit uh, because it's likely not an acid-mediated disorder. In patients who've tried one PPI, it's not unreasonable to try a second PPI. And I see many patients where a second PPI somehow works differently. Uh, and they may benefit. So um, a PPI trial, if not already done, or a second PPI trial and making sure that the PPI trial is done optimally in terms of timing and also for a sufficient length of time as well. But I like to try to emphasize that by the time they get to us, usually we're dealing with more sort of functional dyspepsia and sort of recognizing what their concerns are, providing lots and lots and lots and lots of reassurance, um, which can be very helpful. Uh, and also really focusing on sort of their sort of lifestyle. And that includes their diet. So small frequent meals tends to be a better diet for those with gastroduodenal disorders. Fatty foods tend to worsen symptoms. So trying to address sort of what types of foods may trigger their symptoms in particular, looking at things like fatty foods. Uh, also looking at their sort of general lifestyle in terms of sort of how stress may be playing a factor their sleep habits, their exercise, uh, and really trying to just sort of understand them holistically and trying to get them to understand how their lifestyle may be contributing to their symptoms. And then in terms of those who may be um, sort of PPI responsive, uh, then sort of talking about sort of ways to sort of use PPIs responsibly as well, and those who may not have an indication for chronic PPI use. So expanding on that, these days there's lots of talk about deprescribing PPIs. So tell us a bit more about when you'd consider doing this and how you'd go about deprescribing a PPI. So one thing, first of all, is trying to also understand when, when is long-term PPI use appropriate? And there are situations where that's the case. So some of those would include those who have a history of peptic ulcer disease and have risk factors for recurrent peptic ulcer disease, for example, needing to be on antiplatelet agents. Uh, or for those who are on NSAIDs and cannot come off NSAIDs. So there's certain roles where PPI may offer excellent cytoprotection to reduce the risk of uh, recurrent peptic ulcer disease. The other situation would be in certain patients with GERD. So those who have Barrett's, there's evidence to support the use of PPI, and even the use of double dose PPI to reduce the risk of, for, of development of dysplasia. So in a Barrett's population, I would generally uh, sort of propose long-term PPI therapy, given the benefits likely outweigh the risk. And there are certain patients with really bad acid reflux who come in with more severe esophagitis. And when we grade esophagitis, you know, we grade it from A to D, D being the most severe. And those with the C to D category generally have high rates of recurrence when you stop PPI, unless they can sort of deal with lifestyle measures significantly. So many of those patients warrant long-term PPI or those with peptic strictures. Um, where without PPI have a high rate of recurrence in their peptic structure. So there are certain situations where PPIs are very appropriate because uh, I've had situations where patients had these situations and they're stopped at PPI and then they come in with severe dysphagia. Um, so recognizing that there is concern about PPI, but there's also benefits of PPIs as well. So those are some examples of where chronic long-term PPI use is highly appropriate. But for many patients, they don't need long-term PPI. Um, so I think talking about, you know, how to sort of use PPIs appropriately is very appropriate, recognizing that there is actually evidence to show that most of the PPI related adverse effects are associations and not causation. 
And the one that really stands out as probably a risk that comes out in sort of some of the big studies is enteric infections, including C. difficile. So I tend to be a little bit more cautious in those who have had an episode of C. difficile, as opposed to someone who's never had an episode where the risk is probably lower. The bone risk is also likely maybe a factor and something that needs to be considered and discussed and mitigated as appropriate. But what I tend to do is talk about sort of PPI therapy as on-demand therapy. Um, so patients who benefit from PPI, but don't immediately have symptomatic recurrence when they stop it, that if they have another sort of flare of their symptoms, they could restart PPI and use it for a course of say four to eight weeks. And that's what I sort of refer to as on-demand therapy. And then at the same time, trying to address other ways they can sort of improve their sort of chance of not needing PPI. And that's usually your usual GERD related treatments. So weight loss, avoiding recumbency after eating, avoiding eating late at night as, and avoiding sort of any trigger foods and discussing that for intermittent um, sort of acid related symptoms that other agents like H2 receptor antagonists and over-the-counter agents can be used. Gotcha. Thank you. I had one other follow-up question about PPIs actually, which is when you're trialing PPI therapy, if someone has a poor response or, or maybe a partial response, do you typically go to BID therapy before advancing to the next stage of dyspepsia treatment or should once daily therapy theoretically be sufficient? So if their symptoms are more the epigastric pain, the epigastric burning, if there's a little bit of a heartburn sort of overlay to their symptoms, I would generally sort of work on optimizing the PPI, including a BID trial. And I would uh, often sort of suggest in that situation to at least give it eight weeks to know. If the flavor is more the motility, the postprandial symptoms, so the postprandial firmness, early satiety, and once daily PPI did not provide any benefit, and it was a sufficient course at once a day and sufficiently timed, then I would generally not do the BDID trial because I think the yield will be very low. And I focus more on sort of the sort of meal-related options. Uh, for example, the diet with small frequent meals, and we will likely talk about things like prokinetics. So in patients who are refractory to empiric PPI therapy, what other agents can we use? So in these patients, I, I try to understand what the impact of their symptoms are on their functioning uh, and what their sort of goals of treatment are. Because there are pharmacotherapeutic options uh, that are available in sort of the moderate to severe category and those with functional dyspepsia who do not benefit from lifestyle measures, PPIs, and H. pylori treatment. But we have to sort of recognize that with these pharmacotherapeutic options come potential side effects. There are sort of guidelines and evidence to support what some of these next steps are. This includes prokinetic agents. In the sort of guidelines, they sort of are not always sort of done earlier than what we often sort of do in practice. And I think that partly reflects that in the United States, domperidone is not easy to access. It requires sort of special approval, whereas in Canada, it's much more easily accessible. Um, so I tend would to consider Domper, or at least consider prokinetics as a next step, particularly if it's meal-related symptoms. So if it's the postprandial fullness in particular, the nausea related to eating, uh, then I would likely move on to prokinetics, particularly domperidone, if there's no sort of absolute contraindication. And if they sort of fail prokinetics, or if the symptoms are more the epigastric pain, epigastric uh, type uh, symptoms, then considering neuromodulatory therapy. 
So in neuromodulatory therapy, the, the main ones I use in practice and the main ones that are sort of been studied include tricyclic antidepressants, mirtazapine, and buspirone. Also SNRIs could be considered, and for example, duloxetine, which many uh, general internists will be quite familiar with its use and other sort of chronic pain syndromes like fibromyalgia. So I tend to try to think is if it's more sort of the epigastric pain syndrome, which is sort of the category with the epigastric pain or burning as the predominant symptoms, then I'd like more likely to consider TCAs. And that would generally be at a low dose at nighttime, sort of warning the patient about potential side effects that are the anticholinergic side effects and also weight gain. So you don't wanna surprise people if they're not expecting weight gain about that as a potential side effects. Um, so every sort of gastroenterologist has their own sort of preferred uh, TCA. And I wouldn't say that one is necessarily better than the other, but there are some who have more anticholinergic side effects than others. Um, so amitriptyline will be commonly prescribed. If they have constipation, I may favor towards things like nortriptyline. I tend to start at lower doses like 10 milligrams at nighttime and then work up more towards like 25, maybe even up to 50 milligrams and have them expect that it may take, you know, at least six weeks to see a response. And those with more of the meal related symptoms, um, if they're if predominant nausea, predominant issues with weight loss, then considering mirtazapine as a uh, option, uh, or if those have early satiety, one medication that can actually uh, sometimes work quite well is buspirone, which most people don't consider. You don't see that used very much, uh, but if early satiety is the predominant uh, symptom, that may imply issues with impaired accommodation, and buspirone may help in that regard. Uh, and if there's sort of concurrent sort of chronic pain uh, disorder, then considering sort of duloxetine uh, as an option. That being said, if the patient has dis mood or anxiety disorders that require SSRIs, then treating those appropriately with SSRIs, uh, and I would generally leave that to their family doctor or mental health professional. SSRIs in the absence of a mood disorder anxiety tends not to help from the sort of pathophysiology of functional dyspepsia, um, but if there is a mood or anxiety disorder, then SSRIs uh, should be considered. But as a sort of gastroenterologist, the medications that I would normally prescribe for moderate to severe would be TCAs, mirtazapine, and buspirone as sort of my three go-to agents. The other thing to consider is psychological therapies. So looking back to brain sort of gut interactions, part of why some patients may have higher healthcare utilization can deal with maladaptive um, thoughts, mal sort of poor coping skills, or sort of underlying somatization. And in that regard, sort of addressing those factors through sort of psychological therapies, including things like CBT, gut-directed therapies, hypnotherapy uh, can be appropriate uh, in a patient who's motivated to do so, and if you can obtain access for that, which sometimes can be a challenge um, due to limited availability or costs that go along with some of these uh, therapies. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Tartaro. I know we all really appreciate, you know, learning from you and from your expertise and talking us through the guidelines today. So thank you so very much. My pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me today and uh, great work with this series. Thank you for listening to this episode on the CAG and ACG guideline for management of dyspepsia released in 2017. Special thanks to Dr. Pierre Tartaro for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded by Catherine Luer and produced by Christoph Kowalik. 
The Internist Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Basantha Mohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.